0: Y'all come on in, take your
1: shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the wood pile. I'm Spunk Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another installment of the Tao of Tao series, where we discuss the ancient Chinese wisdom tradition of the same name. On this episode, we're on the third part of a story chronicling my own adventures and thoughts on Taoism, which we started on podcasts 117 and 127, respectively. My buddy, Brother MacDaddy McWilliams, is with me in the room to comment here and there and to add the ambiance of his heavy breathing. And our friend Vic is also along to read some of the old timey source material. So here we go.
0: He who dreams of drinking wine may weep when morning comes. He who dreams of weeping may in the morning go off to hunt. While he is dreaming, he does not know it is a dream. And in his dream, he may even try to interpret a dream. Only after he wakes does he know it was a dream. And some day there will be a great awakening when we know that this is all a great dream. Yet the stupid believe they are awake, busily, and bright, assuming they understood things. Calling this man ruler, that one herdsman, how dense. Confucius and you are both dreaming. And when I say you are dreaming, I am dreaming too. Words like these will be labeled the supreme swindle. Yet after ten thousand generations, a great sage may appear who will know their meaning. And it will still be as though he appeared with astonishing speed. Zhuangzi.
1: And the last of the Taoist big three MVPs is Zhuangzi. He left a book bearing his name, and in it, the first seven chapters, known by all the cool people as the inner chapters, being attributed to him, actually, and the remaining 26 probably the works of his disciples. It seems that, like the other founding fellers, If he really existed at all, Zhuangzi would have been a contemporary of Aristotle in the neighborhood of 500 years before Christ. This was the Warring States period, which, as you can guess from the name, was also not a happy hand-holding flower power hour in China's history. But probably because of all the chaos, it was a fertile soul-searching time for the Middle Kingdom's collective thought processes, it producing many philosophers in addition to Zhuangzi. These hundred schools of thought produced vagabond scholars who wandered around China collecting followers until they had enough for a movement. These schools of men naturally competed with each other for influence on Chinese society, but, of course, if any of them could convince a high-up government official that they were privy to the truth, well, then the other chumps were shut out of state sponsorship and, of course, power. Zhuangzi, being a true Taoist, played the too-cool-for-school contrarian and actually turned down offers of government posts. Zhuang was his actual family name, by the way, his personal name being Zhou. And it seems that in his case, no other province in China doesn't claim that Zhuangzi didn't hail from the Hunan province. Born near Mount Mengshan, his family was poor and Zhuangzi carried on the family tradition of poverty by choosing a career in straw sandal making. He seemed proud of his destitution even if he had to borrow money from others from time to time. If for anything, it allowed him the freedom to wander around and learn things from various parts of China and to naturally be who he was. Certainly darkening Zhuangzi's opinion of power, his home region was ruled by a tyrant named Prince Yan. Zhuangzi thought so little of those in power, he put, quote, the people at the top of those most important to a nation and their emperor at dead bottom in the vicinity of thieves and murderers. At this analogy and other pot shots we'll see Zhuangzi take at the powerful, I can't help but draw some bit of parallel with Yahweh's similar views as conveyed by the prophet Samuel whom, when the Hebrews demanded having a king like all the other nations surrounding them, God said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. And give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Hmm. If one were to generalize what were some of the other main gists of Zhuangzi's philosophical outlook, it was the furtherment of Laozi's right actions being that of the natural, unforced way. This third Taoist scholar used analogies from the natural world to prove his point. In fact, if Zhuangzi has the greatest-hit idea that all Chinese know, it's in the form of a story about the thinkers' perception of identity, and it goes like this. Zhuangzi recalled one day that he was asleep and dreamt that he was a butterfly, flapping happily about, totally into being a butterfly, to the point of forgetting he was ever a human. But then he woke up, shocked that he was now Zhuangzi, which begged the question, had he been Zhuangzi dreaming he had been a butterfly, or was he not a butterfly dreaming he was Zhuangzi? Mm. The French philosopher René Descartes would echo, in my mind, a similar sentiment about the uncertainty of perception, some 2,100 years later, saying... But how could I deny that I possess these hands and this body and with all escape being classed with persons in a state of insanity whose brains are so disordered and clouded by dark bilious vapors as to cause them to assert that they are monarchs when they are in the greatest of poverty or clothed in gold and purple when destitute of any covering or that their head is made of clay and their body of glass or that they are gourds. I should certainly be not less insane than they were I to regulate my procedure according to examples so extravagant. Oh. As with Lao Tzu and Li very little is known about Zhuangzi's actual life outside of what I've already mentioned and what he mentions in his inner chapters. But of course, this didn't stop the legends from forming. So, of the dubious life stories of Zhuangzi, here are some of my favorites. When Zhuangzi was traveling to the state of Chu. He saw an old skull all dried and parched. He poked it with his carriage whip and then asked, Sir, were you greedy for life and forgetful of reason and so came to this? Was your state overthrown and did you bow beneath the axe and so came to this? Did you do some evil deed and were you ashamed to bring disgrace upon your parents and family and so came to this? Was it through the pangs of cold and hunger that you came to this? or did your springs and autumns pile up until they brought you to this? When he had finished speaking, he dragged the skull over, and using it for a pillow, lay down to sleep. In the middle of the night, the skull came to him in a dream and said, You chatter like a rhetorician, and all of your words betray the entanglements of a living man. The dead know nothing of these. Would you like to hear a lecture on the dead? Zhuangzi answered, Absolutely, I'd like to hear a skull jack jaw. Is that what he said? Well, that's a paraphrase okay the skull said quote among the dead there are no rulers above no subjects below and no chores of the four seasons with nothing to do our springs and autumns are as endless as heaven and earth a king facing south on his throne could have no more happiness than this Zhuangzi couldn't believe this and said if I got the arbiter of fate to give you a body again make you some bones and flesh return you to your parents and family And your old home and friends, you would want that, wouldn't you? Apparently the skull had rotten muscle enough left to frown severely and wrinkle his decaying brow. Why would I throw away more happiness than that of a king on a throne and take on the troubles of a human being again, it answered. So that's one story. Here's another. One winter, Zhuangzi was traveling in the heavy snow to get back to his hometown. When he saw Mount Mengshan, he began to hurry and his excitement ended up tripping over something in the snow. Picking himself up, he found that he had fallen over the body of a young girl holding onto a bowl and a stick, the telltale accessories of a beggar. Though the girl was still lightly breathing, she seemed to Zhuangzi not far from death. The scholar picked her body up and carried her as best he could on back to his hometown. Once home, he and his mother put the girl to bed, and when she began to recover, gave her some ginger soup. The next day, the girl had made a full recovery. Zhuangzi and his mom learned from the girl that her name was Yan Yu, and she was nineteen years old. She had been born into a poor farmer family, and after her father was killed in a war, she and her mother had tried to produce food and income from their farm, but all of it had been taken away by the government via taxation. The two became beggars, and Yanyu's mother died in the snowstorm the day before. Zhuangzi's mother was moved by Yan Yu's story. She took the girl in and treated her as her daughter. Yang Yu was very pretty, and was said to have fluttered around their home like a butterfly, mm. bringing new life to their family. Zhuangzi felt his life had become richer since Yang Yu had joined their family, and particularly was edified when he heard the girl laugh, which sounded like music to him. One day, Zhuangzi and Yang Yu were taking a walk on Mount Mengshan. Okay, this English translation of Mount Mengshan is really bugging me. Literally, we were saying mountain, mung mountain, since shan is the Mandarin word for mountain. So from here on out, let's just say Mung shan, and you can impress your friends with your knowing what the Chinese word for mountain is. For example, quote, so the other day I told my drama queen of a wife to quit making a shan out of a mo xiao shan. Okay, now you know the word for small and hill in Chinese because xiao shan means small mountain, which is what they call hills over there. Lesson over, see you next week. So yeah, Zhuangzi and Yan Yu were up on Mengshan, and the girl bent down to pick a golden flower. She had some trouble and began to fall down a on the Shan. Zhuangzi went to save her, and the two rolled together till they reached the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you giggling? The Zhang Zhang
2: and the Jing Jing. <laughs> and then he fell on the Jing Jing.
1: <laughs> and he couldn't have children. They didn't get up immediately, the two holding each other tightly. Yan Yu keeping her eyes closed. After a while, Zhuangzi put one hand in Yan Yu's soft hair and used the other to wipe the sweat from her face. Only then did Yan Yu opened her big bright eyes. Nearby, they saw two birds building a nest in a tree. Taking that as a sign of the will of heaven, Yan Yu laid an egg. Ah, just kidding. They actually used this sight of the birds as an excuse to state the obvious. They was in love. Mm. They soon married, and though they were often poor, the Zhuang home was a happy one, and in time they had a son. Because he now had a family, Zhuangzi knew it was going to take more than crappy straw sandals to keep his family's bellies full. So he got a job as a supervisor at a lacquer plantation in Yanyu, and their son joined him there at the farm. It turned out that most of the workers there were slaves who had been criminals sent there for the rest of their lives. And there were many whose fathers and grandfathers had been born and died there, and so were unjustly born into the life of slavery. The work conditions were bad, the former supervisor being a tyrant who thought human life was cheap and so abused the workers for any small reason. As soon as Zhuangzi took charge, he banned the beatings and other punishments. He told the managers to treat the workers kindly as that they were all brother human beings. Everyone, including the workers, thought this was a strange concept. One day Zhuangzi saw a white-haired old man bent over from the weight of the heavy lacquer buckets, one in each hand. How long have you been here? Zhuangzi asked. The old man answered, afraid. Sir, I've been here all my life. I was born here because my father was a slave. My son was born here, too, and began working as soon as he could pick up a bucket. It was then that Zhuangzi noticed that the old man was covered with scars, probably from many beatings and whippings. Starting tomorrow, Zhuangzi said to the old man. You will work in the office, counting the buckets. The old man fell down on his knees and cowtowed, tears coming out of his eyes. The other workers couldn't believe a supervisor would be this kind. After this, the old man became a happy person, actually enjoying his job, and for the first time, enjoying his life. Yan Yu even made him some new clothes. The old man cried again when the wife of his supervisor gave him these gifts. But things at the plantation didn't completely change so peacefully, so quickly. Zhuangzi's friend, Baixin, reported that one of the guards was still beating a worker. What's your deal? Zhuangzi asked when confronting the guard. This lazy egg was not working, the guard reported. You have to beat these pukes if you want them to do their jobs. Zhuangzi bent down to the hurt worker laying on the ground and asked what was the problem. Sir, I have diarrhea and I have to keep going behind the bushes, the poor worker answered. He's full of crap, uh, or uh, he's lying, rather, the guard countered. Take me to the evidence, Zhuangzi said to the worker. Sure enough, when the three went behind the bushes, they found some nice slushy piles of you-know-what. You knew the worker was sick with a runny butt, Zhuangzi accused the guard, and not only did you make him continue to work but beat him as well? What do you say to that? The guard was silent and looked down ashamed. Zhuangzi took the guard's whip and gave it to the worker, saying, Now you beat the BM out of this bad man. The worker refused, not wanting to do what had been done to him. Zhuangzi said to the guard, You're fired. Get out of my sight. And don't even think about trying to apply for unemployment because, well, we don't have that yet. (laughs) (laughs) And from that time on, every worker became more relaxed at their jobs and yet worked harder, making the plantation much more productive than when they were treated badly. They made so much more lacquer that there was more income for everyone. Many years later, on the evening of their son's own wedding, Yan Yu rested her head on Zhuangzi's and said, If you had not saved me on that snowy day, I never would have known the happiness I've had. Zhuangzi replied, Yan Yu, my baby pop, without you, I'm nothing. (laughs) The next morning, Zhuangzi took a stroll on Mengshan, and when he returned, found Yan Yu had died. She had been his reason to live, and now she was gone. Zhuangzi was overwhelmed with grief. But when Zhuangzi's dear friend Huayshir came later that day to comfort him, found the wifeless husband playing a drum, and given my love for Afro Cuban music, I like to think that these were actually a set of timbales, and singing a happy song. We'll say, a gozar tembero, quezas? I think your wife's death has made you muy loco, said Huayshir. Are you not sad that Yan Yu is gone? At first I was, yes, Zhuangzi said, but as I thought about how life works, Nothing, birth, death, and then heaven. Our lives are not ours, but the gods, and so Yang Yu was just sent home. She brought me many years of joy, and now she doesn't have to struggle in this life. I'm happy for her and will join her soon. The first time I heard that story, by the way, was from a girlfriend of Peter's named Jing Jing. She had Zhuangzi saying that the reason he wasn't sad was because any time with Yang Yu was more than he had had before she was in his life. So he was grateful for any time with the woman, no matter the brevity of it. Regardless if this sentiment was a mistranslation or some kind of projection of Jing Jing's own thinking, the idea I've clung to ever since. Everything good I'm grateful for, even if it's time in my life is brief, because it's better than nothing, and everything always changes anyway. All things must pass, said George Harrison. Ride it while you got it, said some fat guy who had a U-shaped spined horse one time. (laughs) You can tell I kind of paraphrased a little bit of the right. story. But yep. but that story is really true about the, the guy had diarrhea. Really? Yeah. Did they do that at, at your job?
2: Heck yeah. kind can surprise me sometimes when I'm on the toilet. <laughs> They'll bring me my computer, roll it in there. It's like, you know what? You're just sitting here. <laughs> Get to work. Man,
1: that's a rough place.
2: Exactly.
0: Patching up a great hatred is sure to leave some hatred behind. The wise man will often allow himself to get the short end of the stick and does not make the other guy feel guilty. The virtuous person is for patching things up. The vicious is for placing guilt. But the way of the heaven is impartial. It only sides with the kind-hearted guy, guilty or not. Jing 79
1: Like any written work, one should be careful not to cherry pick, which would be showing the one cherry to your friends and claiming that it was the whole cherry tree. Taking one verse without regard to the whole canon would miss the entire point and end up disastrous, like embracing the tiger without also embracing its cage and your gun. We can easily read just one passage in Taoist literature and then another a few pages over, which might leave one thinking these sages were a little bit schizophrenic. For example, Liedze talks about the brothers of Tzichan, one of whom, quote, gave himself to drinking, unquote, and so much so, the smell of booze and yeast could be smelt a hundred paces away from his gate. The other brother went around seducing virgins, betting women until he was exhausted. When asked about their lifestyles, they belittled the pursuit of a good reputation since it does nothing for one in death. So why not go out in a debaucherous bang, was their angle. Besides, Zichan's rule is dangerously unpopular with the people, they point out. The story ends up praising the brothers for their enlightened outlook. Now to the throbbing groin part of every woman-loving male, this sounds like a wonderfully wholehearted endorsement of our basest desires we've all been looking for. But that view misses the point of the story, especially given that A little later, Lietze says, A man who knows only food and drink but not morality and justice is nothing but a beast. Fighting for food by strength and gaining by winners are rules of beasts. It is impossible to win respect while doing as beasts do. If disrespect comes, danger and shame will fall also. All that said, the earlier passage still holds a wheelbarrow full of irritating truth. How we live our lives and how other people perceive us sometimes has no bearing on when we're going to die. I worked at a cigar and pipe shop in a small town for around three years, got to know hundreds of customers of varying ages, and none of them ever got cancer. Well, my grandfather, who was neither a smoker or tobacco chewer, somehow got mouth cancer. And a whole bunch of other non-tobacco users I know have somehow acquired every kind of cancer ranging from lung to brain to thyroid and so on. And then to think of all the kind selfless folks who have lived Abbreviated lives, while mass murderers like Fidel Castro, Robert Mugabe, Pol Pot have ended up living and doing evil well beyond the median age of average humans. Quote, when death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and drear. And then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year? Unquote. Says the old Christian hymn. Farther along, maybe we can avoid some suffering for ourselves and others through clean, peaceful living. But there at times seems to be a dead-set time set by heaven, where we may still have to answer for our earthly activities in spite of our best or worst efforts. Another example of a Taoist contradiction is with the passage where Lao Tzu says, quote, banish learning and there will be no more grieving, unquote. This seems strange since the whole point of reading the Tao Te Ching or any other book for that matter is to learn something. <laughs> Lao Tzu elsewhere states, Quote, the sage desires what other men do not desire and does not prize things difficult to get. He learns what other men do not learn and turns back to what the multitude of men have passed by, unquote. So what's up? Well, that specific passage regarding banishing learning is one of those that had been written in a specific time and place. When folks talked about learning... In this case, they were speaking specifically of 3,300 rules of etiquette, a maddening discipline of knowing when to say the correct word, hui or o, oh, for yes, at the correct time. Different ways to say yes. A giant waste of time when one reflects on it. Later Lao Tzu says, quote, Learning consists in adding to one stock day by day. The practice of Tao consists in subtracting day by day, subtracting yet again subtracting until one has reached inactivity. By this very inactivity, everything can be activated. And that's from the Tao Te Ching 48. Again, not a knock at trying to learn the Tao truth and generally how crap works in the world, but probably another swipe at learning stuff deemed important by our society, yet in the end pointless to our soul's cultivation.
0: In the state of Wei was a wise and talented man who had high ambitions but being a poor common man he could not get anyone to recommend him for an official post. He greatly admired Duke Juan of the neighboring state of Qi, and so wanted to assist him. He joined a caravan of merchants who were journeying to linse the capital of Qi, as an ox herder. For weeks he stayed in the merchant's camp outside the city walls with no way of gaining an audience with the duke. Then one night, the city gate opened and Duke Huan emerged in the midst of a splendid torchlight procession. Seeing the magnificence of the scene, Ningyu sighed at the hopelessness of his ambition and launched into a sad song. The Duke heard the song and was deeply moved by it. He thereupon ordered that the singer be brought to entertain him at the court. When Ningyu came to work for him, Duke Huan soon realized that he was not only a talented singer, but was also well-versed in statecraft. And so he appointed Ning Yu to a ministerial post. There was an outrage at this action by those on the court, the officials protesting that Ning Yu was not even a native of the state of Qi and nothing was known about his background. But the ruler said, if I inquire into his background, I am sure to find some skeleton or other in his closet. That would cloud my judgment. I prefer to concentrate on using Ning Yu's talents to benefit our state. Taoist teachings, Huai
1: The summer of my third year in China, a professor at the university wanted me to speak to a traditional Chinese culture society. He thought it would be interesting to hear about how the Tao fared in the West. At first I balked because really I'm just a guy who likes to read and tell my friends what I've read until they say, um, I've got to go to the bathroom, and then they never come back. The professor said no problem because the squatty potty where the society met was broken. So I just prepared a presentation based around comparative quotes of various figures in the West and some of the uncanny correlations between their thoughts and what could be found in Taoist writings. I focused on the Torah, Socrates, the Gospels, and Ronald Reagan. Megan was my translator. Speaking of these things is always a little tricky. If for anything, they just don't have free speech behind the bamboo curtain. The local communist newspaper, well, the only newspaper, would be there to report on the event, and the organizers were very nervous about the possibility of me touching upon anything that might be seen as a criticism of the current leadership, You know, especially when you consider Zhuangzi. I promised to avoid most of what smelled like that, But where it became unavoidable, you know, the Taoists and their Western counterparts' texts don't mince words about those who meddle in everyone else's lives and business. We substituted the word government for ruling class. Also, they said Reagan's words were okay because he criticized the American government and not the Chinese one. Still, I noticed the organizers were all nursing oxygen tanks and chain smoking until I finished talking. We knew most of the attendees would be there just to see the novelty of a foreigner who knew a little something about their culture and might attempt to speak some Chinese, which would probably come out sounding hilarious. Akin to maybe if you found out a Kurdish bluegrass group was playing down the holler, you might go and see them regardless if they were any good or not, just because that's got to be worth a few bucks cover charge to witness an Arabic version of my long skinny lanky Sarah Jane. What we didn't know was that there was going to be a bunch of traditional Chinese scholars there, Right before my speech began was when they were pointed out to Megan and I, all there looking stoic in the front row. Anxiety began to jitter itself into my belly to the point that I felt like throwing up all the spicy noodles and chicken feet I'd eaten that morning. We started to speak, and I at first apologized as that I was going to present things as best I could considering the original Chinese text had been translated into modern Chinese and then into English, then through my Hoosier brain, then through Megan's factory rural village brain, and then back at the crowd into modern Chinese. That was supposed to be my humorous icebreaker moment, but the crowd just looked at us as if they hadn't heard it. The thing about Chinese audiences is that they're pretty hard to gauge. They sit there all stony-faced and kind of look miserable. I was more hoping for a crowd like my university students, who also often stared without emotion, but from time to time would at least bat their eyes giggle or cross recross their legs in their daisy duke shorts but not this bunch uh, that was the girls mostly 15 minutes in i took the time to glance at the row of scholars trying to dispel their frowny face hexes i began to wonder what they'd look like in daisy dukes i was wishing i was wearing short shorts as well cuz not only was the toilet broke which we were beginning to smell But so was the air conditioner, or maybe they just didn't have one. I end up looking like an action marshmallow edition of my normal self by the end of the lecture. I was so puffy from the heat. Megan at one point whispered to me that she also felt like she was going to throw up all the manto and chicken feet she had eaten that morning. I whispered back, Just keep reminding yourself that after this thing is over, we'll leave and we'll have a big bowl of hot pot and chicken feet and that'll be that. Megan told me later that that strategy did not help at all. In addition to the similar taoist like Western streams of thought, I talked about how sadly the word Dao had been a bit of a marketing gimmick in the West, as is the Japanese word Zen, where if you wrote a book called How to Weed Your Garden Like a Boss, you might sell a few copies. But if you titled it The Tao of Weeding Your Garden Like a Boss, then people would rip off their bras and throw hot cash at you to read your weed-yanking masterpiece. Using this marketing twist, quote, how to give yourself an enema with stuff laying about your tool shed equals yawn. but the Tao of a needle-nose plier, wingnut, and WD-40 enema equals mui de Some people laughed at this point in the crowd, and someone said aloud, this is true in China too. <laughs> I also mentioned I'd seen the Tao Te Ching sitting on a lot of bookshelves in America, mostly at cocktail parties of upper-class self-described progressive world citizens. And during the parties the host would tend to hover near the shelf that that book was on. They might even rub the book's spine with a hand not holding a glass of Chardonnay at some point, making sure we all got a good view of the work as they pontificated on current events. But whenever I'd ask the doubted Ching stroking host what was their opinion of the meaning of nothing in the world is as soft and as yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. They all put on a deeply concerned face muttering something about the tofurkey beans in a boat tray needing to be restocked before slinking away. I have eventually established that a lot of people own the book and were proud to have it, but very few seem to have read it. The audience laughed, and again, someone concurred. Same in China, same in China. (laughs) They kept saying, (laughs) Finally, when I ended the speech by saying, Over A few more smiles were finally broken out, and one scholar ripped off his pants to reveal the Daisy Dukes I had so yearned for, his veiny, hairless legs displaying a tiger tattoo whose tail snaked up around and up into... Well, okay, that was just a heat-induced daydream. Next, they brought up an older man who they called Mr. Wu, apparently an eminent Taoist scholar in the province. I was pretty floored, especially as he spoke. Megan whispered to me, He spoke in Chinese. He's confirming everything you said. And afterwards, some of the scholars chatted with us, some on some killer theories about the Taoist approach to physics and economics, and took photos of my overheated marshmallow head. For Megan, it was a bit of a dream come true to be able to be a translator for something official and in public. The only mistake she made was a pretty funny one. I mentioned President Ronald Reagan being shot, and she translated as being shot dead. The crowd erupted into, Boucher, Boudouet. no, incorrect. (laughs) At that point, the red-faced Megan put her hand over her mic and whispered, I want to go home now. (laughs) After the speech was over, a friend of ours ran up to us and asked, Megan, how could you kill Reagan? (laughs) All in all, we made a whole lot of new friends and got several invitations to eat and ended up on state TV looking 30 pounds fatter. You were on TV? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things in in China. They, they'll show you talking, but somebody else will be kind of telling people what you said. You never actually hear the audio of me, even when I spoke in Chinese.
2: So were they saying the white devil? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, not quite that, but they will say, like, the foreigner was a great admirer of Chinese culture and, you know, that type of thing, which is true. But you do come off looking like an idiot. And to give you an example, another example, another one of the foreign teachers... There was some restaurant that was having a grand opening. The news crew was going to be there, and they wanted some foreigners there to make it look like it was the hot thing. You know, it's all all manipulation, right? So they said, come, and we'll be free. And so they they sent a taxi to get them, and they came out. And this woman, she's from Oregon, but she's been using chopsticks for a while, even in America. And so she was eating her noodles just fine, and the director of the, the news crew... Came over and asked her, could she pretend like she didn't know how to use chopsticks? Because they wanted to make, like, look at the dumb foreigner. We figured out later. It kind of made me mad, and I thought, you should have told them to take a hike, you know? But that's just how they do. So she was a good sport about it.
2: Look at the white devil.
0: If three people look after three sheep, the sheep will not eat and the shepherds will have no rest. This practice was prevalent with the state of Ji's government, but they learned from their mistakes. When organizations are overstaffed, there are more hands than needed. Orders will be coming from everywhere and everyone, and there will be more troops than civilians. Chaos where the intention was order. Zhuangzi
1: As I noted before, Taoist writings were written during the times of kings and emperors. Though the people really didn't have rights as we would see them, again the monarchy and the government officials were supposed to rule fairly as if everyone under them were their children. They seemed to get the treating everyone beneath them like their children part down pretty good in that the people were pushed around, stolen from via excessive taxes, forced to fight in wars they had no stake in, and became the pleasure playthings for those above them and their sons. Now, on occasion, a wise, benevolent, and fair emperor or local official would happen along, but they seemed to be few and far between, and often got early retirement via assassination. There was no concept of democracy or republicanism during those days, yet the Dao Jia did try to address the misery that the powerful inflicted on the people by a handful of ways. First, addressing directly those with power. The Tao Jing encouraged rulers to not go around invading other kingdoms, to strive for humility and putting themselves beneath those they served, shrugging off the pursuit of wealth for the sake of wealth, not causing hardships on the people via taxation, and most importantly, to allow to the people freedom to act and grow naturally. This is from a story called Shimon Bao's administration. Quote, Mediocre governors put on a show of power and wealth by enforcing strict discipline on the people and wringing grain from them, but this is just hollow posturing. I store all prosperity and strength among the people. The relationship of loyalty is consolidated through a long and natural course of trust and harmony. It is impossible to reestablish it once it's broken. Second, Lao Tzu addresses everyday individuals. With their limited but still potentially effective power, the little guys were encouraged by the Dao Te Jing not to force their own wills on others, or even their own lives, which we'll get to eventually. Regarding the problem of power, There's a lot of parallels, even still in our time, and that of the ancient Chinese imperial days. But there are nuances on the similarities and differences I'd like to chew on. People in charge abuse their position, no matter the culture. We still have presidents, ministers, and other politicians in charge who act like the kings of old and like to conquer other countries, are too proud for correction or criticism, materialistic in taking wealth from others for their own gain, think themselves smarter than others, and especially love to tell others what to do. But our times have the added flavor of those powerful figures feigning to be taking care of those in need via government aid and programs, but alas, with other people's involuntarily taking money and also often leaving the folks they were intending to assist worse off than they were in the first place. Where this phenomenon begins to look something timelessly sinister is when we find that our leaders are often just aiding people to secure their votes and thus increase their own power. It's genius, really, especially considering that they can hide behind the banner of compassion to maneuver themselves into higher seats of power. And how easy it is for these politicians to paint anyone who might shed light on their corruption or inefficiency as just greedy extremists who hate the poor. During an argument with Confucius, Lao Tzu said to his rival, quote, By demanding that others be unselfish, you are seeking to allow yourself to be selfish. The times, they haven't changed that much.
0: To hide a boat in a ravine and to hide a fishing net in a swamp can be said to be safe enough, but at night a strong man might come and carry them off while the owner is fast asleep. To hide something small and something large is reasonable enough, but there is always the possibility of losing it. Hide the world in the world, and the world will never be lost. This is the eternal truth. Zhuangzi 6
1: That speech Megan and I gave at the traditional Chinese society opened a whole floodgate of doors to people who told me that they were scholars or at least had written books on Taoism. Everyone I met was so eager to talk and tell me what they had learned. No one having a sense of snobbery, or secrecy. They were all open books. I went to everything I was invited to, and after almost every one of these discussions, the scholars would always tell me to take what I had learned back to America. I would always shake my head and apologize, explaining, but I'm an idiot. To which they would answer, one made that. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Since he who claims to know the Tao doesn't know the Tao. Yeah? Well, I certainly didn't know it, that's for sure. The first In a chain of particular scholars was Mr. Wu, the man we had met at the speech. Wu was interesting, if for anything, he had been a lawyer in a country where the law is rarely debated. He told me how he had explored all the major religions, Buddhism and Christianity mostly, and was able to quote from their wisdom literature. But he said the reason he settled on Taoism was that he had asked the monks and priests of the other religions, could they predict the future? Other than their beliefs about reincarnation, heaven, and other afterlife speculations, nah, they couldn't. And since the I Ching supposedly could tell the future, well, that was the proof in the pudding for Wu. That's when I realized that he was of the Tao Zhao persuasion, and my mind began to wander. I remember telling another one of my students named Taylor, who also helped with translating on my trips that summer, even if they really could tell the future, I don't want to know, and I think it's a little dangerous, you know to get stuck in fatalism or something just because some coins got rolled this way or that. Mr. Wu admitted he couldn't answer all my questions I had about the Tao Jia, and so took us to the Long Ma Futu Se, or Dragon Horse Temple, which was outside a village called Hui in the Hunan province. Once at the facility, we were led into the middle of a lecture by a plump, red-faced Taoist priest speaking with mostly older ladies from the surrounding villages. I wasn't catching much of what he was saying, and Taylor was becoming so enchanted she stopped translating after a while. But every few minutes, spontaneous applause and laughter broke out from the townswoman. Taylor cooed like the priest was a dashing Chinese actor or something. As I mentioned before, China was short on air conditioning when I was there, and so most places were clothes soaking hot in the summers. But at some point, the priest asked Are we too hot? And then he pulled a remote control from his smock and clicked the air conditioner on. No pointless suffering around this temple. Afterwards, we chatted in the priest's office about how the Taoist fared under different emperors, Sun yat Sun and Chairman Mao. When the priest found out I was from America, he held up his iPhone and gave a thumbs up. He told how he had a rich man come to him because he had been unable to sleep. So the priest went over to the guy's house, moved the furniture around a la feng shui, And the guy slept solid after that. Being so grateful, the well-rested man bought the priest the expensive phone. Later that day, the priest drove us home in a van that was also given to him by a grateful client. As I've said before, my interest wasn't much into the I Ching magical side of Taoism, but I tried to keep an open mind. They assured me that learning the I Ching would help illuminate the Tao Te Ching. And besides, Taylor and Megan were totally enraptured with this side of the Tao, at least for a little while. I went up to the temple nearly every week that summer, our heads full of numbers and stacks of lines and parallels and opposites. There was even one stack of lines that made both Taylor and Megan's cheeks red as the Chinese flag. Apparently one stack had a little broken line or a gap that was supposed to be a vagina. Not in a dirty way, mind you, but with China not as open about talking about their private parts in public as much as we do in the West, it still produces giggles and hot cheeks. (laughs) I notice your cheeks a little hot right now. Yeah. My mind wandered in other ways before visions of vaginas were placed in my head. Finally, though, after one of our discussions, I asked a particular question about Zhuangzi and human behavior. The priest said, You need to talk to my teacher. Off again I went to be handed off, not really expecting much. The priest led us to another building on the temple grounds, and in the small, plain room was an old man with thick glasses and a stringy beard. This was Master Lu Zhixing. And only after a few minutes of discussions, he smiled and said he would be my teacher and would answer my questions about the Tao Jia. He also gave me a Taoist name, Jing Yi. Glancing around his home, I asked about a stack of notebooks near his bed, and he reported that he was in the process of writing down Taoist stories that had never been written down before. If that were true, I said, that's what I've been looking for. He said that in future meetings he would read them for me to record, and then I could take them to America and publish them in English. I was like, right on. Mm. So we agreed to meet in the future, specifically when he returned from a trip to meet some other Taoist scholars on some particular mountain. It could be a while, he warned us.
2: When he pointed at you and gave you the thumbs up about the iPhone, Uh I would have turned to him and said, that was made
1: here. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and it was actually made in a city about two hours away. Really? Yeah, Foxconn was there. And several of my former students actually have worked there. They all say it's a difficult place to work.
2: Well, I heard they have, like, dorms and people stay. And they said they got nets that extend outside the building for people that jump, try to kill themselves, to catch them.
1: Yeah. Well, that net thing is not a new idea. The first time I remember hearing about it was during the Cultural Revolution where people were trying to kill themselves to escape what the country had become. So the communists installed those initially. But most factories... A lot of them, they have dormitories, and that's just the way it is. So Foxconn is not really any different than most of the factories.
2: But can you imagine, as a person going to work there and not knowing about that, and it's like, what What are those? It's so, Oh, people try to kill themselves all the time. Do I really want to work here? <laughs> it's so bad, people jump off the buildings?
1: Yeah, it does make you wonder if you'll oversee your pension. It's interesting, and it's kind of off the subject, but on it. When I first got to China, nobody was aware of, of uh, Steve Jobs. Really? Yeah, they were starting to become aware of the of the iPhone, but they didn't know who he was. And you know, it's just all everything's kind of controlled, all information. They knew who Bill Gates was. In fact, me and the other foreigners laughed. There was this little haircut place, and it showed different people's heads. You could get these particular haircuts. And, you could get the Bill
2: Gates cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: But oh, uh, God. But when Steve Jobs. I think it's when he died that China, the CCTV made a big deal about it. They kind of said, oh, by the way, he's the guy that invented the iPhone. At that time, the iPhone was big. And all of a sudden, everybody was reading this biography, this Chinese biography of Steve Jobs. Jobs. Every speech I got from a student, they were all like, I want to be Steve Jobs.
2: I would have said, do you want to be an A-Ho? They said he was a massive jerk. I heard one time that he was in a meeting. People were just like, you know, talking, just Mm -hmm. like hey, how'd your weekend go? And he was just like, can we get off that, you know? He was just like, you know, let's just...
1: It's interesting that he he was also a Buddhist, and you wonder, like, well, because I don't think Buddha would have been a jerk, but then somebody else pointed out, or maybe I've, it's kind of a common thing to say when someone, oh, he's supposedly a Christian, or, oh, he's supposedly a, a Buddhist. And then someone will say, well, maybe he would be a worse person if he wasn't a Buddhist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. a worse version of... Of, yeah, the version that we see. So You know, my favorite story about Steve Jobs, I don't know if it's true, but apparently when they were working on early versions of the iPhone, they were a little bigger than they are now, thicker. And uh, he said that you need to make them smaller. And they said that no, we, we can't make them any smaller. And he supposedly dropped one in an aquarium that like was just in the office. And little bubbles kept coming up from... The iPhone, he said, there's air in there, you can make it smaller. Wow. Uh, again, I, I don't know if that's a myth, but it's an yeah. interesting story. All righty, we'll pick back up in a few episodes. In the meantime, if you're interested in more of this kind of existentialism, you can check out the very first Tao of Tao podcast we did a few years ago on In the Corner, Back by the Wood Pile, episode nine. In which the aforementioned Megan and I recorded in China, not long after we had made our presentation to the traditional Chinese Society.
2: In the corner, back by the woodpile, is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via Spun Counter Guy at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and kick grease.